You are listening to the War on Autism podcast, where autism, recovery, and life coaching collide. I am your host, Allison Smith, certified life coach and mom of an amazing autistic son. Hello, everybody. I hope y'all are having the most wonderful week. It is a gazillion degrees here in Texas. We literally hit 109. 109 degrees. That was the real temperature. So I hope y'all are somewhat place cool. I hope you're having a wonderful week and I am very excited about this episode. As promised, here we are with a podcast on vaccines. I've had so much interest and when I decided to go ahead with this one, I really wanted to be sure that I gave you all the information because when I started to compile everything that I already know, plus cited research in medical studies, plus government documents, I realized, wow, this is going to be like a four-hour podcast. And I mean, I'm not Joe Rogan. I'm not going to do that to y'all. And I have promised that I will keep all of my podcasts short and sweet, very concentrated, very easy to digest because I know that you all have very busy lives. So I try to keep them about 15 to 20 minutes and I will do my best to keep this first podcast on vaccines within that time frame because I do respect your time and I'm very thankful that you are spending your time with me. So let's go ahead and dive in. When we start looking at vaccines, I feel that it's very important that we start from the beginning. We need to know how did we even get here? Like where did vaccines come from? Where was the government involved when we began this journey? And then from there, we can go on to see how we've ended up in this place. So starting out with a little bit of history, we are going to start with 1798. That is the year that the very first vaccine was ever made. And yes, you heard that correctly. The 1700s was when we got our very first vaccine. And it was developed for smallpox because at that particular time, Smallpox was very devastating to Europeans. It was killing about 400,000 Europeans a year. So that was the development of the first vaccine. And it wasn't until about 80 years later that we got our second vaccine, which was also equally as important because this was a vaccine against a bacteria. So it was our first bacterial vaccine. Now, following from those years, we ended up creating about six total vaccines by about 1901. And in 1901, this is very important because that was when we have our first documented vaccine injury. So in 1901, 13 children died of a tetanus-containing diphtheria vaccine, and nine children died from a tainted smallpox vaccine. So you can see from the very beginning, we've had injuries from these vaccines. 1901 was just the first documented, so... There's a lot of uncertainty as to if the very first vaccine in 19 or 1798 had any repercussions. We don't know. But in 1901, we do know the direct link between those children's death to the vaccines. And it was at that time that the government said, okay, we may need to step in here. Because up until then, it was all private industry. You had to pay for the vaccines. The If you were a patient that wanted it... You, there were no government subsidies. You had to pay for it out of pocket. All of the manufacturers were privately owned, privately regulated. In fact, actually, they weren't regulated, which is why the government stepped in. And what they did is the government stepped in and they said, we're going to create this Biologics Control Act. And what the act did is it said, 
if you are a vaccine manufacturer, you have got to meet these guidelines. If you meet these guidelines, we will issue a license and we will license your vaccine. And that is our stamp of approval that it is safe for the community. Then you can distribute to the American people. And that Biologics Control Act is actually what we would now consider the FDA. So it was basically the FDA created that that said you have to have licensure. But we should also make note that at the time, the Biologics Control Act, the FDA, they were not really equipped to oversee licensures of vaccines. Vaccines were still relatively new. So what they did is they asked the hygienic lab to come in and help them create this protocol to license these vaccines. And the hygienic lab at the time, they were a very small one-room lab, and they were just trying to be on the forefront of vaccines. They were scientists who loved their, they loved their study. They truly wanted to help humanity. And so they were just doing research when the FDA approached them and said, hey, can you help us create this licensure? So, of course, people who want to make a difference in history, they stepped up and said, absolutely, we can help you create this licensure. And that hygienic lab now, today, is the National Institute of Health. So that lab eventually evolved and became a strictly government agency. It is the National Institute of Health. So that is when we started having the government intertwined with pharmaceuticals was in 1901. So let's fast forward. So from 1901, now the manufacturers have to jump through a little bit more hoops. It's a little bit harder to get a licensure. It's a little harder to get that vaccine out to the public. So you don't see a whole lot of vaccines really produced from 1901 until about 1955. You know, it's a little harder. And in 55, what happened, the cutter polio vaccine incident happened. Another really important date because... Vaccine manufacturers were already having to jump through more hoops to distribute their product to the people. And then in 1955, this polio vaccine accident happened and 260 people were actually infected by polio from the vaccine. What happened is the the production plant, something went wrong. I didn't exactly read how it happened, but the live polio virus survived the process of turning it into a vaccine. So they were actually injecting these children with live polio viruses. And the government stepped in like they should have on the first vaccine was given in April 25th. By April the 27th, they demanded a recall. Less than two weeks later, the entire manufacturing plant was shut down and they were not allowed to reopen until everything was corrected And I think that that was a beautiful example of the government stepping in like they are supposed to. They stepped in to prevent any more injury, and they were very swift and very efficient. So then what you see happening as far as the historical timeline of vaccines is these manufacturers sort of slowed down a little bit because, well, now that not only do they have to jump through the hoops of getting a license with the government, But now they're really seeing the power of the government. The government can actually come in and shut you down. You better be on top of your game. You can't have any accidents or we're going to come in and shut the entire plant down. So that means you can't produce anything. If your plant is making polio and tetanus and rubella, they can come in and shut it all down. And then you have no no inflow. So we start to see that the licensures slow down. We only have about seven 
that are created from 1955 to 1963. And 1963 becomes a very, very pivotal point in immunization history. And that is because that is when the federal immunization grant program was established. So, like, what is that? That is the birth of the childhood immunization schedule. That is when the government said, hey, you have to have these vaccines for school. 1963 was the year, folks. And when that happened, these manufacturers saw there was a demand. And hey, we can be the supplier. Because now, it's not up to who can afford our vaccine. Now the government's saying, hey, everybody better afford this vaccine because you have to have this. It's no longer just a suggestion because up until that point, that's basically what it was. The government suggested, hey, you may want to get vaccinated um, for this or that or something else. But now the federal government is saying, no, you have to have these. And also, can I make a note that at that time, what the government said you had to have, it was only six. Six shots. That's all you had to have in 1963. But what happened is that was enough of an incentive for these manufacturers to go ahead. They had sort of slowed down production because of the licensure. They had sort of slowed down the production because of the risk of getting shut down. But then when you start looking at a market of millions of children, and that is just an endless supply because people are always going to have babies, then they decided to hop back into the game full force. And in 1986, another huge thing happened in the immunization world. That is when the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act came into play. That's where we got our VAR system, the Vaccine Adverse Event Report System. Only about 20 years after the government said, hey, you have to have all these vaccines, that's when the government started to see the repercussions of those vaccines. So they had to create a type of protection for these manufacturers. And I just want to read you the legal document, like what this says. And you can look this up on congress.gov. And I really do encourage you to look up everything that I say, because I want you to read it for yourself. I think it's very, very important that you have that education that you see with your own two eyes and you don't just take, take it from me. By the way, I will also list all of these sites at the bottom of the podcast in the description. So I'm going to quote from the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. It says, and I quote, provides that no vaccine manufacturer shall be liable in a civil action for damages arising from a vaccine-related injury or death, one, resulting from unavoidable side effects, or two, solely due to the manufacturer's failure to provide direct warnings, end of quote. Can you believe what I just read? That is exactly what this government document says is that, hey, manufacturers, you're not liable anymore. Not only are you not liable for an accident or for damages, you're not even liable if they die. You are not liable for any of that. And what we're going to do as the government, since you're not liable, we're just going to pick up the tab. And when this piece of legislature became public, when these manufacturers saw this, it was a gold rush because now these manufacturing companies, they had no risk. They had zero liability. 
And instead of having that bit of precautionary side to them where they thought, hey, we may should research this longer just to be sure that there's no side effects. Well, they don't have to do that now because now they don't have to pay for it. They can get it out there. The government is going to take over the downstream effects and they don't have to worry about it. And when this happened, it was only two years following that the government had to establish the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. There were so many injuries reported, they literally had to create an entire segment of funds to cover it up. That was in 1983. And you know, you would think, if I'm the government and I'm having to pay for all of these injuries and I've given these people immunity, basically, maybe I should step back and reevaluate. Maybe there's some other piece of legislature that we can come in with. We can make things safer, uh, maybe make the licensure harder. There were things that could have been done. But did we do that? No, we didn't. Instead, in 1993, we established the Vaccines for Children program. Another big date, because that is when the government said, hey, we know that we've demanded all of these kids be on this scheduled immunization. So now we're going to make it easier for you to get on that schedule. If you are on a government insurance, it's free. If you have Medicaid, you get those vaccines for free. Not only that, we're going to buy a ton of these vaccines from private industry. We're going to give them to all of our federal health clinics. And if your child goes to that federal health clinic, they get that vaccine for free. And it's really hard for me to see how any bit of that is not tainted. Because it was only about five years before that we've had a, an injury compensation program because there were so many having injuries. And then five years later, we said, hey, let's just buy more of these vaccines. Let's give them to even more children. It just seems very crooked to me. But moving on, we get up to 2004. So here we go. We know that we've had lots of injuries. But by 2004, the eighth and final report was released. And this was on immunization safety specifically to see if autism was related to the MMR vaccine or thimerosal-containing vaccines. So there were several reports. This was obviously something that had been fought for a very long time. If you understand how legislature works, it is very slow. So by 2004, it was the eighth and final report. And I went in and I read the report. You can find this on PubMed, um, and I will post the actual link to this study so you can read it. But the study ended up reporting that it favored rejection on the causal relationship between the MMR vaccine and the Mersol-containing vaccines in autism. That's what it said. It just said, we favor that they're not related. And I think it's very important to note that when I found this study and I was reading it, I felt like the study was very vague. But something that jumped out at me was that underneath the heading, at the very top, it said this report was funded 
by the National Institute of Health. And to me, that seems very fishy that the National Institute of Health funded a study that said there was no relationship whatsoever to autism and vaccines, yet the National Institute of Health owns hundreds of vaccine patents and therefore profit off of hundreds of vaccine patents. Seems very crooked to me. So I did a little bit more research. And if you look on PubMed, when you see any kind of scientific research paper out there, you can scroll to the bottom and you will see cited studies. So that means that the paper that you're looking at has been cited and used for different studies. So scientists, this is very common. They use other science to sort of build on to become better. So I thought, I'm going to look at some other studies. Let's do some comparative studies and see what we find. And what I found, the very first one was a study that had used the eighth and final report from immunization safety as a comparative model. This study was not funded. It was done by two scientists independently. And it proved, it was like remarkable, the differences between these two studies. And it compared the effects of the MMR immunization and the mercury doses from thimerosal containing childhood vaccines and they found a prevalence in autism. And the study, when you read it, the results were completely different. And in fact, it showed a direct relationship between the increased doses of mercury from thimerosal-containing vaccines and neurodevelopment disorders. So what you're going to hear a lot, especially with vaccine debates, people will say, vaccines don't contain mercury anymore. No, they contain thimerosal which contains mercury. <laughs> so they're, they're very wrong when they say that. It is still a heavy metal that is in the vaccines. And they found a direct relationship between that and neurodevelopment disorders. And they found that the measles containing vaccines, so these are your MMRs, they link that directly to neurological disorders. And these scientists recommended in their opinion that they all need to be removed that thimerosal needs to be removed from every vaccine, not just the MMR, which was what they started the study on, what they were looking into first. And then after discovering this, they said, no, no vaccine is safe. If it contains thimerosal, it is not safe. And they found significant odd ratios that autism followed these doses of vaccines. So the article... (laughs) proved completely different from the one that in 2004 created some legislature. And it doesn't take anyone too long to connect the dots. So NIH funded the study. But I mean, that's what they're supposed to do, right? They're the National Institute of Health. They're supposed to research studies. Of course, that's what they're supposed to do. But they're not supposed to own hundreds of vaccine patents that create profit. And you know who else creates vaccine patents and profits? The CDC who made that decision. So basically what happened is the NIH funded a study that showed no correlation between autism and vaccines. And then the committee who's responsible for reviewing and making the final legislative decision is the CDC. So NIH said, I'll fund the study if you make it okay. And that's exactly what happened in 2004. And if you go on to look, there, there have been several pieces of legislature that show members of the CDC 
and the FDA who are directly involved and on boards of these huge pharmaceutical companies. They own patents themselves. You tell me how crooked that is. If you're the agency that is supposed to ensure safety, yet you are also on the board of the production of something that makes something unsafe, that is a conflict of interest. And I found a piece of legislature from June the 15th of 2000, um, Conflicts of Interest of Vaccine Development, Preserving the Integrity of the Process. That's the name of the document. Um, This was House of Representatives document, and you can go through and read it. And it was fascinating because it breaks down how many people on the advisory committee of the CDC are heavily, heavily invested in these huge pharmaceutical companies. It is mind-blowing. And at the end of the day, they're still involved. Like, yes, this came to light in 2000, but obviously nothing was done about it because in 2004, we had a very crooked study that was passed. And just to draw a little bit more of, I shouldn't say a conclusion, for me to paint a better picture for you, let's just take a look at the autism statistics. So remember, in the 1960s, you only had to have six vaccines, right? So in 1970, 10 years later, autism was one in every 10,000 people. In 1995, so that's two years after we have instituted the vaccine program where the government gives free vaccines, basically, to everyone, you see that that rate of autism is one in 1,000. Then you move on. After 2004, when the government came out and said, oh, don't be scared of autism, there's zero link. In 2010, autism is 1 in 68, and then today, it's 1 in 34. And honestly, I feel that that number is is much higher. I feel there are lots of children who have not been diagnosed yet, who are incredibly high-functioning and have missed that diagnosis, especially the young girls. They are harder to diagnose, but I feel like that number is higher. And I have read statistics that by 2035, one in two boys will be diagnosed with autism. Now, am I saying that vaccines are the sole cause of autism? Absolutely not. I think that it is definitely a contributing factor. And I think anyone who puts the statistics of vaccines, the number of vaccines given to the number of autistic children, you will see that those lines parallel and they trend upward. I think you would be foolish to not see some type of a correlation. Now, I'm not saying correlation is causation, but what I am saying is that those numbers are very scary. And the fact that now your children are required to have 33 vaccines by the age of 16, not counting the flu and the jab. And yet our numbers for autism are 1 in 34. So we will hop back on here and discuss this further, but I think it's something worth pondering. I think it's something worth creating some skepticism at how government agencies who are heavily invested financially in private pharmaceutical companies, they are the ones who are responsible for the health of the people, yet they are invested in something that is potentially hazardous for the people. Just something to think about, and we will continue the rest of the vaccine series next week. Until next time.